I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to uh, the book of Genesis. Today we come to chapter 32. Sorry if I kind of do some weird stuff with my arm today. I, I spent about 20 minutes killing about 30 uh, flies in the fellowship hall. Now my elbow kind of feels weird. No matter, it's kind of funny the things that will hurt you whenever you get older. So anyway, um, uh, we're at Genesis chapter 32. I mean, sorry about that. Uh, in this chapter, chapter 32, Jacob finally, yeah, I, I killed, I did, I killed like 30 flies. Not an exaggeration, all right? It's, it's like graveyard in there, um, the war zone. All right, in, in chapter 32, Jacob finally leaves Laban behind, right? Laban has been Jacob's greatest challenge in his entire life and, and the greatest enemy he's ever faced. But he leaves Laban only to face the prospect of an even greater enemy. Right? Jacob is going back to the promised land and now he has to face his brother Esau. This creates quite the ordeal for Jacob. Like He's been told by God and he knows he has to return to the land of promise. Uh, but he also knows that means he must face someone from whom he stole everything. The birthright, the blessing, everything. And the last he knew, 20 years before, wanted to murder him. This whole situation, as we'll see in chapter 32, makes Jacob vacillate. Makes him vacillate between the fear of God and the fear of man. And I don't know if you remember last week we talked about like the favor of man and how we always want to strive for the favor of man. This really zooms in on that aspect in this chapter and, and kind of the fear of man. Right, and what the fear of man makes us do. And, and, and Jacob, it makes Jacob vacillate. He, he, he displays fear of God in some places, but also a, a great fear of man. And this, this whole episode reminds me of like dating in high school, right? Like, uh, dating is funny because we, we tell ourselves that we're in this committed relationship, but there's really no commitment at all. You know, if you ask someone who if you're dating, it's like, so, like, okay, so what, what are the reasons they can leave you? It's like, well, any any reason and and what well, what's stopping them from leaving like is there a process they have to go through it's like no they can I mean they can send you a text if they want say we're done so i mean there's really no commitment and and that's why you don't want someone's boyfriend or girlfriend in your wedding photos cuz they might not be there in a couple of years right you don't want that that you know slouch in your wedding photos unless there's actual commitment there and so honestly sometimes because of this, I don't know about you, but I don't know. I feel like in dating, we like to keep our options open, right? So like, I like this girl, but hey, if it doesn't work out, I'm just going to keep my door open over here, right? We're no different. Now, I use that exa- ex- illustrate. I'm not necessarily describing myself. I don't know. Maybe I did. I, I wasn't that great of a dude in high school to girls. Uh, but like, we're no different with God, okay? That's my point. We're no different with God, except right it's not like we're like, okay, God is good, but if, if he doesn't work out, I'm going to go to this different God. It's more like this, that we ask him to do something, but we like to do a little bit extra to help him out, because if God doesn't come through, well, at least we have our options over here. All right, it shows a, a kind of a lack of true commitment on our part. And we, we do this all the time, no matter what your dating life might, may have been. We like to have a little backup, just in case God... You know, he misses, messes up or misses, misses the opportunity. Jacob illustrates this 
and he illustrates this tendency that we all have. He, he's vacillating between the fear of his brother Esau and the fear of God. And what we will find out, and this is a spoiler alert, is that only the fear of God will bless us. So I want us to, do, to, to walk through this passage together and do a kind of self-diagnosis diagnosis, asking, how do we know we are truly fearing God? Or if, if we're being driven by the fear of man. So let's read this together. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's 32 verses, so sort of, sort of a long one, uh, but we'll work through it together. So let's start reading in chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned now with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him in the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. With only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels in their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And Whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the, 
God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. All right. This chapter is, uh, it's got a lot of it, but the whole chapter is ironic because God has shown himself to be an abundantly faithful God to Jacob. He has blessed Jacob so tremendously that he is a very wealthy man. Uh, He has delivered him from Laban, and he's kept Jacob safe from harm. So, So surely, Jacob will have learned his lesson by now. We can certainly see growth in Jacob's life, but we can also see that he still has a long way to go. And here's the first question that we need to ask ourselves. Are the seen forces of man scarier than the unseen forces of God? Are the seen forces of man scarier than the unseen forces of God? If if, if Jacob at this point still has any doubt that God is with him, God makes sure he knows it. So verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And and Jacob saw them, and he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place, Mahanaim, which some of you at the bottom of your your Bibles, on the bottom of the page, uh, the name Mahanaim means two camps. Uh, This kind of reminds me of this uh, kind of abortion post I saw, and uh, someone was saying the, the decision is between the two people, only two people in the room, uh, between the woman and the doctor. But someone had replied that, well, there's three people in that room, um, the woman, the doctor, and the baby. And I think that's right. And in a similar way, it's, it's what's being shown is it's not just Jacob's camp. Jacob is not the only one in the room. God's camp is also present. But then Jacob sends these messengers to Esau, right? He, he, he sends these and says, I'm coming to you. And he calls him my Lord, right? He's, he's trying to appease Esau here. Uh, I have sojourned. I have, all, I have all these things. I sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And then the, um, the servants bring back some news that sounds pretty alarming. Hey, guess what? We found your brother Esau. We told him, and he's coming to meet you. Uh, and he's bringing 400 men with him. Okay, that, that would be pretty alarming. Imagine if you invited someone over to your house and they said, yeah, great, I'm coming, but I'm bringing 400 men with me. And then imagine that that person you invited is someone who wants to kill you. Some of you are thinking the Second Amendment, but that's not where I want us to go today, okay? All right, no Second Amendment. You just have 400 men who are on their way to kill you, okay? So Jacob does something very ironic here. What does Jacob do? He splits his family and his flocks into two camps. There's a play on words here, if, if you didn't notice. Just as God and Jacob were two camps, now Jacob is splitting up himself into two camps. But I hope that the, the meaning isn't lost on you. Before Jacob ever split himself into two camps, he was already two camps. In fact, God just showed him that one of those camps isn't just a bunch of sheep and servants. One of those camps is a camp of warriors. But the reason Jacob does this, the reason he splits himself into two camps, 
as he says in verse 8, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then that camp that is left will escape. He's, he's hoping to mitigate damage, right? And in all honesty, that's, that's, like a, that's a rational thought, all right? If we're just kind of assessing this, maybe objectively, it's rational, we do this if, our, if, if your retirement is in like a 401k or in stocks or something, right? You, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You split them up as much as you can so that, right, if something happens, you don't take as much damage, right? Your, your retirement or your savings or whatever can remain relatively the same. It's not a bad thing, by the way, right? This is not, the lesson is not um, to undiversify your 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 stock portfolio if you have one, okay? It's not the lesson. It's just an illustration. But what we need to ask ourselves is exactly the prospect that Jacob is facing. Are the seen forces of man scarier to us than the unseen forces of God? We may not today be worried about an impending invasion Right, as, as, as threatening as uh, some countries might be. But if we were, right, if there was like this impending invasion, right, if there was a navy out in the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean waiting to just dock on the coast, right, this is the question that should be on the forefront of our minds anyway. But regardless, let's, let's not even consider that. Think about the kind of... Um, let's say, invasions or, or threats, right, that, that we might be afraid of today or, or that culture might want us to be afraid of, right? I, I, if I'm honest, I think a lot of us uh, as Christians um, frame uh, progressivism as a kind of invasion, right? And if we're really honest with ourselves, it, it kind of scares us, right? We, uh, listen, I mean, taking away rights, okay, uh, da- uh, damaging our livelihood, changing the fabric of society, damaging the faith, right? Um, and don't hear me wrongly, these are legitimate concerns. I, I'm not trying to downplay uh, the concerns that come with all of this. The, the question I'm asking today is not, sh- should we not do anything? The, the question I'm asking is, do you truly believe we are two camps? Do you truly believe that no matter what kind of assault happens, that the people of God are protected by an overwhelming army of angels. The answer to that question changes how we respond to threat. Because God, with His unseen forces, is far more capable than we are with our entire array of weaponry. Whether it's physical weapons, weapons of uh, politics, weapons of culture... Forces that we can't see, feel, taste, or touch are far greater than any weapon we can fashion. I mean, do you guys not remember this very same kind of episode that happens later in 2 Kings with Elisha? Jerusalem surrounded by foreign invaders. Servants scared out of his mind. And what does Elisha do? He says, you don't need to be afraid. Why? What happens? Elisha opens his eyes and he sees hills filled with flaming angels and chariots. So, this is a diagnostic question. Are the seen forces, seen powers, seen 
uh, threats of men scarier, more fearsome than the forces of God you cannot see? Question might be different depending on the day, but ask yourself nonetheless. And so, so Jacob has this moment where he, he oh, it's the camp of God, and he recognizes it, and he sees it, and then he kind of vacillates, and he's like, well, well, there's two camps of God, but I'm going to do this to help mitigate damage. So he, he back, goes back and forth between fear of God and fear of man. Then in the second part, uh, Jacob prays this extraordinary prayer. I mean, this is a great prayer that, that uh, we should learn from and actually model our prayers afterward. But then, he, 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 so he appeals to God in prayer, but then he turns and tries to appeal to Esau with all these presents. So my second question today for you is, are you more comforted by what you possess than by what God provides? Look at, let's look at Jacob's prayer. Look at verse 9. Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and, and God of my father Isaac. So, so first off, he's appealing to God uh, on the basis of who God is, right? He is the God of, of Abraham and Isaac, the God of faithful covenant love. And listen, God is delighted when we come to him and just appeal to him based on who he is, right? That the God who shows us faithful covenant love in Christ, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who was and is and is to come. We pray these things on the basis of who God is. And then Jacob acknowledges that he is who he is because of God. So he goes on to say, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. Something we should pray uh, over ourselves too. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. And so Jacob's saying, I'm so great, I, I can make myself into these two large camps. Therefore he says in, in verse 11, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Like I said, this is a really fantastic prayer, and, and we can model it uh, in a number of ways. But the part that sticks out to me is, is but you said. Church, God is a God of his word. Right? God is not ashamed to, in, to tie his integrity and his character to what he said. He wants us to so bank on his word that we can pray his word back to him and say, God, you said. God, you said that you show mercy. God, you said you are the God who delivers. You said you will cleanse us of sin. You said there is joy in, in you. So when you read your Bibles, it doesn't matter what part of the Bible it is, try to take it and say, God, you said. This isn't name, and claim, name it, claim it, all right? But it is taking God at his word and saying, God, you, you said that you will deliver us. The Psalms are especially good for this, right? If you don't know, if you were to read chapter 32 and you're like, I, 
I don't know how to make this prayer. Go to Psalms. Psalms are a great place to turn Scripture into prayer. So he prays this. Wow, what a great prayer. And then Jacob tries to do some collateral. He takes a great portion of his flock, divides them into these droves, and sends them staggered ahead of him to help appease Esau's wrath. So, like I mentioned, he's trying to appeal to God with prayer and then appeal to Esau with possessions. So which is it going to be? Is it God who is going to keep Jacob from harm or are possessions going to do this? I, I try to think of a, a good enough illustration to try to, to communicate kind of how double-handed Jacob was be, would, could be. And uh, um, the illustration I came up with today is uh, it's like a politician, right? A powerful politician. He's, he has appealed to and convinced Americans to build up our forces and our military to defend against China, but who all the while is, is buying stock and in, in all these kinds of things in China, right? It's, it's underhanded. It's slimy. He's not banking, in other words, all that he is. All, he's not truly believing that America's a, a, a nation worth defending, right? Or, or that America can or whatever. He's saying, if America doesn't come through, well, at least I've got this. May not be a, a perfect illustration, but Jacob here is essentially saying, well, if God doesn't come through, at least I have my possessions. Church, we, we have to ask ourselves the same thing, especially because we live in such a materialistic culture. This attitude, right, it keeps us from giving generously and sacrificially because we need these possessions to keep us safe. It, it makes us self-preserving rather than self-dying. And, and ultimately, it keeps us sur- from surrendering all that we are to God. Are you more comforted by what you possess than by what God provides? And then comes, in my opinion, one of the most bizarre episodes in the entire Bible. I mean, you can tally them up. This is probably top, top five. And, and the one reason it's so bizarre is because there's so little we know, okay? Like, there's a wrestling match in the middle of the desert between Jacob and a man who turns out to be God. I mean, who knew? There was a UFC match right here in the middle of the Bible, all right? And the question we need to ask is this. Are you willing to lose now for God's glory in the end? Are you willing to lose it in the now for God's glory in the end? So, so Jacob, he sends his family across, right? Uh, across this river and stays for the night. And a man comes and wrestles Jacob. And this scene is actually funny to me because I, I feel like I can picture so perfectly two grown men just rolling around in the desert like dust going everywhere and they're just grunting and everything like it's kind of a funny picture to me all right uh, may, uh maybe actually uh if maybe if i were a uh, uh a preacher who really liked to make more practical points i could say church we need to have more wrestling matches if there's a disagreement between two of you well let's take it out to the cemetery right all right let's go after church 
We're going to settle this, mano y mano. But there's actually some really important stuff that happens here. Uh, first, it's not a coincidence that this happens on the verge of the promised land. All right, this, this scene is it's packed with significance because it happened right before Jacob enters the promised land. So that means what happens here is incredibly important to prepare Jacob to, to get there. And with Jacob's return to the land of promise comes a significant change in his life. And that change happens when this stranger puts his hand on Jacob's hip socket and which puts it out of joint and, and Jacob uh, has a limp for the rest of his life. He's a, he's a cripple. And it's only after Jacob is disabled that he gets blessing. The man blesses him and renames Jacob to Israel. And any time you see someone renamed in Scripture, it's significant. It's huge, right? God renames Abram to Abraham. Here, he uh, renames Jacob to Israel. Later, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. And God changes someone's name when, through these people, He's forming a people for Himself. And get this. Jacob's identity, and as well as the people that come from Jacob, their identity is now wrapped up in a man who walks with a limp. That's why Moses tells us, he has, has that note in verse 32, that Israelites don't heat that sinew or, um, yeah, on, the, on the hip socket, right? Because their identity is wrapped up in a man who walks with a limp. Right? When I think of America, I think of George Washington. I mean, the guy was such an imposing figure. He'd ride up on a horse. He's like over six feet tall. He's like this great hero of a man. I, George Washington is awesome. Right? We don't put, um, I don't know, some dude with a limp. Right? The guys with limp are not in our statues. But this, uh, this chapter is just so full of irony. It's amazing. The, Biblical writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are such great writers because Jacob's name, right, means he grabs the heel. And this is where the meaning of Jacob's name comes to its full fruition. The scholar named Jan Fokelman, and she put it this way, Grasping his fellow man by the heel has for Jacob come to its extreme consequence. A wrestling with a man which to Jacob is the most shocking experience of his life, as appears from the fact that thereafter he proceeds through life a man changed of name and thus of nature, and under the new name he becomes patriarch of the Israelites. Alan Ross goes on to write, There was this blessing to be, to be sure, for the new name signified a new status and a new direction, but there was also defeat, for Jacob's crippled walk signified that before God, he was powerless and dependent. The man who grabbed heels had his leg ripped out of place. And again, it's not a coincidence, right, that, that the main focus is, is Jacob wrestling with the man, right? We, we don't n learn that it's God until the very end. And so, so Moses wants us to really zero in on the fact that this is a, a, a man that, that Jacob is wrestling. How is God appearing as a man? What is happening? I don't know. Okay, I can't, we can talk about it 
at some other point if you want. But this is the point. If Jacob is to prevail against man and the threat of his brother Esau, it will only be when he recognizes that blessing only comes from God. Despite all of Jacob's efforts, right, to pacify his brother Esau, to send gifts, whatever, it is only because of God that Jacob is blessed, only because of God that he's reconciled with Esau, and only because of God that his life of life is preserved. Jacob makes this interesting point in verse 30. I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. If Jacob can be spared with God, how much more with Esau? In study this chapter, it was such a delight to study because, again, notice, it's ironic that the way God cripples Jacob makes him unable to run. If Esau were to attack Jacob, he can only limp. He can't run away. God makes Jacob's life vulnerable. We don't like to be vulnerable, do we? But we must be a people who understand that God gives blessing as well as burden. And often the blessing comes because of burden. How does that song go? He gives and takes away. Blessed be your name. Charles Spurgeon once preached, It is a good thing to be without trouble, but it is a better thing to have a trouble and know how to get grace enough to bear it. And and that, that burden can come in many forms. It can come, like with Jacob, like a crippling disease or... or um, pain, a burden that comes from loss. You lose something that was precious to you or dear to you. Look, it could be a burden from losing safety. Losing safety in um, a city or a culture or um, society. The question is, are our sights on what we can gain now or on God's glory? Because if it is God's glory that we're after, we can afford to lose if we need to. Listen, we're the only people in the world who can lose and it be for our good. Everybody else who is not in Christ must win. And they do everything they can to win. But we, we can lose. I love to quote this passage um, from Hebrews. And it just shows what these people just lost, what they could lose and what we can lose if God's glory is our goal. Hebrews 10. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes, if, if that's not happening to you, being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you know that you yourselves 
had a better possession and an abiding one. The question is, are you willing to lose now for God's glory in the end? Like Jacob, we have an enemy. An enemy who wants to kill us. Jacob and Esau reconcile for the most part in the end. But, but this enemy that we have will only be satisfied if we're destroyed completely. And, and miserable and suffering. Sin and the powers of darkness are always coming, always pursuing, always threatening. They never sleep. And if on our own, if we use our own efforts, if we try to fight in our strength, we will be destroyed. No matter what we do, no matter how many gifts we offer, we cannot pacify this enemy. This is why God brought His camp to us. God sent His Son Jesus, who like Jacob also wrestled, but this time against the sin and condemnation of man, and came out crippled. The Son of Man hung on the cross, absorbing both the power of darkness and the condemnation that we deserve. And Christ crippling led to victory, not just for Himself, but for all who believe in Him. And so, we sing this song, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all worked together and accomplished the enemy's defeat on our behalf. And through faith, in Christ alone, that victory becomes ours and we need not fear. Let's ask God for greater faith in who He is, what He has revealed to us, and in His work. Let's respond to God, the living God in His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father of God, thank You for Your Word. For Your Word is not just for our knowledge. Your word is not just for our enlightenment. Your word is for light and life and truth. You don't want us to just know these things, but to, but to live by them. To help us to see that in you, and you alone is blessing. That we can lose so many things that are precious and dear to us in this world. And, and walk through life with a limp. But to have your blessing, to have your glory in Christ. It's far better, far more precious, and far more lasting. Give us faith that we are two camps. That it's us and your vast array of heavenly armies. Give us faith, God, that, that you provide. That our possessions can buy us nothing. Give us faith that your glory is good, is worth everything. Give us faith that we would follow in the steps of Christ 
who lost everything for us. And we can now lose everything for him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.